Hi, you're listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live as part of the 2022 festival. Enjoy. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 2022 Sydney Writers' Festival. Hooray! <laughs> That's got to be the easiest applause I ever got in my whole life. <laughs> um, my name is Ailsa Piper, and my day job is writing and occasionally acting. But tonight, I am your very excited host for this conversation with Sarah Winman about her much-loved novel, Still Life. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we're meeting on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and to pay my respects and my deep gratitude to Elders past and present for their continuing custodianship. So, Sarah Winman. She lives in London, but she grew up in Essex, which may or may not explain her love of cold water swimming. She attended the Webber Douglas Academy of Dramatic Art, and for over 15 years, she was an actor in theatre and film and television. But her first novel was The Heartbreaking and Hilarious, When God Was a Rabbit, and that was published in 2011, and it became an international bestseller. Just like that. Her second, A Year of Marvellous Ways, was published to critical acclaim in 2015, and it was a Sunday Times bestseller. And her third, Tin Man, was shortlisted for the Costa Novel Award in 2018. That brings us to her joyous, sprawling, magnificent 2021 novel, Still Life. It won the Dimmock's Book of the Year here in Australia, and it wins hearts everywhere it goes. So four novels in 10 years, pretty amazing for a jobbing actor. I'll just recap quickly before we join Sarah. For those of you who haven't read Still Life, I'm really sorry for you. And for the, for the rest of you, just a little reminder. It opens in Tuscany in 1944 with a chance meeting between two characters, Evelyn, 64, Ulysses, 24. And they will spend much of the rest of the book hoping to find each other after this brief meeting. The story journeys through 35 years, crossing between a pub in the east end of London and a square in Florence. The cast of characters swells to a big tribe, a large sort of created, extended family. There are wars and loss and love and sex, of course. There's a decommissioned ambulance and a West End piano player who eventually gets a gig in a Morricone film. There's a flood with angels in its muddy aftermath. And there's a talking parrot that might just be Shakespeare. And all the while, across the decades of Sarah's story, while we ache and celebrate with all those other people, she keeps us waiting with our breath held until those original two characters find each other. I can't even say it without getting <laughs> weepy. It's pathetic. Anyway, the woman who created this magical epic is with us courtesy of the magic of the internet. It's a huge pleasure to be able to say congratulations and welcome to... Sarah Winman, are you there? Am I there? Hello. 
Yes, I am. Ailsa, thank you so much. You've made me cry too. (laughs) Um, Hello, Sydney. I wish you could see there are 800 people here, all of whom just love your books. Um, Tell us where we find you. Where I am right now is I am in the city of London, which is a square mile, probably known more as the financial district. And it's, I'm in a little studio flat that I have had since 1992. And life has changed around me. But this, in this flat, very little has changed. <laughs> um, so, yes, I've, done, I've written four books here. And we had, uh, we had our lockdown in here as well. Fairly cosy, I would think, then. Very, very cosy. But, you know, we were safe and I was very lucky to be here. So that looks like your kitchen. Are you as adventurous at the stove <laughs> as you are on the page? <laughs> yeah, I'm getting better. Um, I, I, it's, I think it's like anything. When you, when you love what you're tasting, what you're doing, you want to know more. You become more curious. And certainly in the writing of this book, I became more curious. And I had some great chefs, um, an Australian uh, Japanese chef who's based in uh, Florence, Emiko Davis, who you will know. She's a friend. And I, uh, she helped me with this book. She actually did the, um, what I call the, the, uh, the, the food edit of this book to make sure I'd got it right historically because that's her expertise. So I got her cookbooks and I started to cook a lot more. So I'm, I'm more confident and I play around with recipes now. Fantastic. Because food seems to me to be such a wonderful memory evoker. You know, it places things. I'm sure everyone can remember the scene with the liver sandwiches on the bar at Cole's Pub and when he turns up with Spam in the back of the van in Italy because you can't get a decent meal in Italy, apparently. Um, But you... I know someone like that. Really? My friend, yeah, my friend... My friend Silk, she travelled down, you know, with a group of people down to the south of France probably about 20 years ago. Uh, they were staying in this villa and uh, the guy who was hosting them, when he, when he was going to unpack, he lifted the boot of the car and it was full of tins. I mean, you're in the most beautiful area, but no, you know, the fear of, of many, well, I can only say it, the fear of many English people that they're going to have food that is unknown to them and might cause a stomach disruption uh, that's why they carry their food with them. <laughs> it's wonderful. Maybe it's a wartime sensibility. You never know. You've got to hoard it there. I don't know. Maybe. It will be. But um, this book, of course, does actually begin with a meal. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I, I just wanted to ask you one thing about food. When we were doing a couple of emails backwards and forwards in preparation, you mentioned that your favourite dish, in fact, your last dish, would be spaghetti alle vongole. Tell me, if you would, where you first had that, perhaps. Can you remember? I would have had it here in England, actually. I wouldn't because I was quite late in travelling to Italy. We never really travelled as a family as kids, so I was quite old before we travelled abroad. So I would have had it in an Italian restaurant, um, probably Ciao Bella, which is a, a, a very known um, Italian restaurant in Lamb's Conduit Street. They, they do a variation of it. And then it's, it's always, but I do what my grandparents used to do, not with the Vongole dish, but when they, when they were, go out to eat with my parents, they would have the menu 
And this happened every time. Thick menus, they would go through it and, and it would take forever. But I knew that they were going to have ham, egg and chips. <laughs> and everybody knew they were going to have ham, egg and chips. So that's what I do. Every Italian restaurant, they're waiting for me. I'm going through the menu and Patsy, my partner, she's like, just say it. You know what you're going to have. I said, I know, but I'm just looking. But no, I'll do the same. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, we do a good one down here in Australia. So come back soon. Um, I want to come back. <laughs> oh, can I just say, a couple of friends told me that they were coming tonight. So I just want to send them my love. They haven't put their hands up yet, but I'm waiting. <laughs> we don't. Um, so, yeah, still life opens with a meal, doesn't it? You know, it, I, I love that it opens with food, rabbit and figs. Yep. Um, but it's two English spinsters, that wonderful old-fashioned Forsterian, would we say Forsterian, a word used by Forster, will that do? Um, word, spinster. Um, sitting in an albergo, having lunch as the mortar shells drop. Tell us where and when that became your beginning and perhaps how, because it's so um, delicious but also kind of audacious. Yes, and I, I can't take ownership of it um, uh, uh, that it came from my imagination. It didn't. So part of the research, um, I'd found a, a book and there was a great bibliography at the back. And then I just went through these books and there was one book and it was by a man called Florentine, um, by Frederick Hart. And the book was called Florentine Art Under Fire. Now Frederick Hart was part of the American Fifth Army who came up through Italy with the English Eighth Army. Um, and this is in real life. And he was also an art historian. And he traveled around Tuscany in a Jeep called Lucky 13, trying to find these artworks that had been hidden in these villas. And there is this scene in his book where he's driving through and they're, you know, they're, they're finding these bundles of works hidden out. And the artillery is exploding all around them because it took a long time for the Germans to leave. So you had this, this moment where, you know, Basically, the Allies and the Germans were, were nudging up and up together. And even a point when Florence was started, you know, the Allies came in, the Arno separated them. So you would have the, German, uh, the English on the south side, the Germans on the north side. And the only reason the Germans didn't retake the town was they didn't know what to do with the population. I've segued. So there was this kind of split situation happening. So there he is driving around and it's like... And he writes, he said... Finally, you know, we needed some lunch. So we see this restaurant up ahead and we stop. And there are a few Italian custodians and there were some French captains and there were a couple of English spinsters. And it's like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean there are a couple of English spinsters? And that it had to be the beginning. Since then, people have told me, oh, there were always English spinsters in Tuscany. Always, during every war. Um, and I also liked, Elsa, that that you picked up on the word. Awful word if we, were use, if we were writing spinster today. Awful word. However, because I'd already thought about Forster, the word sort of linked the two worlds. And because I was going to use this as that I wanted the reader to think, oh, this is going to be hopefully entertaining or it's going to have a bit of joy. It's not, it's not going to be too weighted. I thought I would use the word in a slightly... Um, kind of sardonic or co comedic term. It's an interesting word too, isn't it? Because in a way for Evelyn and Margaret someone who never gets named, um, 
there is a kind of freedom in being seen to be a spinster because you can be invisible, it seems to me. And in fact, Evelyn is part of a group of really quite famous women. I mean, she pops up, people pop up in her life, don't they? Violet Trefusis and Vita and Virginia are somewhere in a, a photograph. And not that they're all spinsters, but there is that thing of the sort of middle-aged or older woman who can kind of move with great freedom. Um, so spinster yeah. for me also has the, that possibility about it. Oh, I agree with you. I think there is great freedom in that. You know, we, we came from acting as well. And there is a moment when you are invisible and that rubs up against you and that's really frustrating. And that the more I move through my sort of, you know, getting towards 60 and beyond, I can see how empowering, how freeing that, invis that invisible cloak is that you can just move unencumbered. And I think for women, that's what we've always wanted. We've wanted acknowledgement we haven't wanted people to move into our space uninvited to tell us how we should be or how we are. Mm. Here, here. <laughs> um, in that opening scene, there's a wonderful thing that Evelyn says. So Evelyn Skinner and Margaret, someone, are sitting at lunch. And Evelyn says of herself that she came from an unconventional family and she says scandal was a rite of passage. I really love that. I wonder if you would just tell us, before we move into the book, a little about your family. Is your, was your upbringing, as a child, were you wildly imaginative? Were you quiet? How did, how did your early years sit in terms of scandal? <laughs> well, I, I wish. I think I, I live out my character's scandals. I don't think mine was terribly scandalous. Um, I, as I said, I was brought up, I was brought up, they would call it Essex. It was the eastern suburbs, which is a, quite a, a lovely, it was sort of working class, straight, lower middle class area. Um, childhood for me was very free um, in the sense we were, it was a different time. So we were always out um, on bikes. I was a fidget. So I didn't really, I've talked about this before, and I say this to possibly parents whose children aren't reading, I didn't come to the love of reading fiction until I was well into my 20s. Wow. You know, that wasn't my great storytelling love. It was very much television, and I loved films, and I loved going to the theatre. I loved, you know, that sort of visual um, element to it. So that's where I was. I was out and about. But recently, you know, a, f a friend who we grew up with, she's just died. And I suppose what was a very informative time of my childhood was, was the times that we spent with this other family. So what I will say is that we did have <clears throat> an element of found family. So we weren't just this nuclear, my brother, my parents. There were a lot of people around, which was wonderful. And we used to go... We used to go skiing for about seven years in the 70s with this other family. So I was probably about 11 at the time, and it took us all through that period. And nobody really did it. You know, it wasn't popular like it is today. We used to go by coach, and it took, it looked like two days and a night. And sometimes the coach drivers didn't even know they were going. We just ended up on these um, adventures. So we, we, it was with this company called Hards which we later renamed Hard Up. <laughs> um, and, and, and my aunt Syl, well, we ended up in one place in Niederau at this pensione that um, really weirdly 
and disturbingly had Nazi photographs on the walls. And my, my aunt Sylv would always take the breakfast rolls, you know, for lunch. And then one morning the, the Frau marched out and demanded that she emptied her pockets. And then we would have, you know, um, toboggan runs. I mean, health and safety was nowhere near this. So some old farmer would drag us up on a tractor on a mountain road. The kids would be hanging on the back on a toboggan, getting all the exhaust fumes, getting a bit high. The parents were in the front having schnapps, having a great time. And he'd take us to the top of the mountain and it was all unlit. And he'd go, yeah, down there. And we would just whiz down onto toboggan exactly the same way that he'd come. And nobody would stop the traffic. and We'd have to veer off. So no scandal, but a lot of adventures and a lot of freedom and a lot of, I don't know, just not too much of having the wings clipped. Mm, wonderful. That sounds like a thing that would actually open your imagination, I would guess, you know, <laughs> to, certainly to nature, because nature's very big in your world, isn't it? Um, we'll come yeah. back to that. I'm going to get you to do a bit of work now. Um, we're going to go back to Tuscany, and I would love you to read the section that we, or you chose, um, with the meeting of Ulysses and Evelyn. So, Great. Sarah, as most of you know, also reads the audiobooks, so you're in for a treat. Okay, so as Elsa said, this is the start, this is 1944, we're in Tuscany, and Ulysses is actually on his way to meet Captain Darnley at a villa. Ulysses drove into the hills, leaving behind the silhouettes of tanks and men. He passed different Allied divisions, young men like him worn old. The soft light moved with him across the groves and meadows until the sky held only ripples of pink and the night chasing him from the west. He tried to practice ambivalence towards this country, but it was futile. Oh. We'll get her to pick up. To light flickered across his face. He slowed and came to a stop with the engine running. He reached down for his binoculars and saw it was a woman standing by the roadside, watching him through hers. She waved him down with an unlit cigarette, and when the jeep came to a halt, she cried, Oh, thank God. Eighth Army. Just a tiny fraction of it, I'm afraid, said Ulysses, and she held out her hand. I'm Evelyn Skinner. Private temper, said Ulysses. Where have you come from, Miss Skinner, if you don't mind me asking? Rome, she said. What, now? Oh, good Lord, no, from that albergo behind the trees. I came up a week ago with a friend and stopped off in Cortona to assess the damage to the Francesco di Giorgio, miraculously untouched. We've been waiting ever since. Waiting for what? I'm trying to contact the Allied military government. Well, for what purpose, Miss Skinner? to liaise with the monuments, fine arts and archives officers. They know I'm here, but they seem to have abandoned me. I'm an art historian. 
I thought I could be of use once they'd located all the works from the museums and churches. They've been sequestered around these hills, you know, all the masterpieces, the whole gang, even dear old Chimabue. But I suppose you know that, don't you? Ulysses smiled. <laughs> I did hear a rumour, Miss Skinner. Do you have a light? she asked. I wouldn't recommend it. Look what happened to me. And he pointed to the scar at the corner of his lip. Sniper, he said, a near miss. Evelyn stared at him. Uh, but it hit you, she said. Yeah, but not the important bit, he said, tapping his head. Nearly took my lips off, though. Then where would you be? Mm, struggling with my plosives, private temper. Now, light me up, please. Ulysses leant across and struck a match. Thank you, she said, blowing out smoke in a perfect circle. She raised her arm and looked about. See, no snipers. So, do you think you can help me? I'll be no trouble at all, and my lips, still perfectly intact, will be forever sealed. What do you say? <laughs> You're putting me in a bit of a bind, miss, though I'm sure you're no stranger to that. Do you believe in fate, Miss Skinner? Fate? Ooh, it is a gift, according to Dante, anyhow. A gift? <laughs> I like that. Come on then, Miss Hoppin. Oh, drop the miss, for God's sake, said Evelyn, sitting down next to him. My name's Evelyn. And yours? Ulysses. <gasps> Ulysses? Oh, how wonderful. And is there a Penelope waiting for your return? Nah, just a Peggy. And I doubt she's waiting. I think that perhaps you should do the one-woman show, actually, and tour around the world. We'll all come. Um, let's, okay. <laughs> let's talk fate for a moment. When that wonderful thing, Dante's gift, you use, I mean, you, you do the most extraordinary thing of making us believe in coincidence or fate all the time in all your books. You also weave in luck in the most extraordinary ways. And I would like to ask you what you actually think about luck, because we have got lottery wins, we've got people crossing paths and finding each other and not quite finding each other. We've got, um, you know, the most wonderful sort of moments where bets come off and premonitions happen and huge amounts of money. Tell me about luck in your life, because it's a big theme in all your books. It is. Um, it's also, Elsa, a device. So there is luck in this book, but um, I didn't want to get into the problem of giving these, uh, these English people who are going to Italy uh, a job when they can't speak the language. <laughs> so they needed some money. <laughs> <That's> um, <wonderful. laughs> I mean, you, you know, there was a lot going on in this book and I had two years and this deadline was getting closer and you have to sort of think, oh, how are we gonna do this? But going back to your question, yes, luck, fate, chance, God. We have different words for it, don't we? Um, and, and depending on where you come from, you have different relationships. My relationship, I wondered whether we might talk about this. My relationship with, with that bundle is that the mystery happens to me when I'm in alignment. And what I mean by that is when I'm very grounded and when I feel my instinct is really keen, 
you know, when it's just sharp. And then I'm incredibly trusting of, so my intention might have been, for instance, to go right, but I'm being told to go left. And my experience has been that that is when the magic happens. So that is when fate, luck, chance, God, however you want to describe it. And there is a little element of free will involved because often when I'm in that position, I will have done something maybe that needed a little bit of courage or needed me to actually put myself forward in a way that I maybe wouldn't normally do. And, but just because in my guts, I, that's, that's what I'm being told. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's rewarded. And that's usually when those elements come together. Mm. And for instance, if I can go on with this, was my meeting with the brilliant woman who gave me the content for Evelyn. And how that happened was I was, I was having acupuncture um, with an acupuncturist who I don't normally have at the time. This is about, gosh, two and a half, three years ago. Uh, she's putting the needles in and she, she was Italian and she said, we didn't know each other too well, but she knew I was writing. And she goes, how's it going? And, and I wasn't sure. I didn't know her. Sometimes I'm a little bit hidden and I just go, oh, yeah, no, it's all fine. It's all fine. And I didn't this time as that needle pinged into my forehead. I went, no, it's awful. It's going so bad. I don't know what I'm thinking. You know, I've written an art historian and I know nothing about art. Who would do that? Needles are going in. And she goes, well, what do you need? I went, well, I need an art historian. Okay, tell me more. Where? I went, well, I need an art historian in Florence. I need her Anglo-American or certainly an English speaker. I need her to have gone to Florence during the flood. And I need her still there. And I need her still to be an art historian. So still sort of practicing. And she goes, hold on. She's got her phone out in between the needles. A few more needles. And she's going, okay, Sarah, I have your email. Tonight you will get an email. I went, oh, okay. And then I rested on the bed. And that evening I got an email from somebody who said they'd found me an art historian who was still practicing, who was Anglo-American, who had went in the flood and never left because she fell in love. And she's still there. And she's expecting me to call her the next day when I was traveling to Florence. And that woman was Stella Rudolph. Wow. That's a, you never let that acupuncturist go. That's all I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> and is, is Stella, did Stella write about still life paintings or is that, a, that's a different book? No, because Evelyn yeah. writes about still life painting. But yeah, Stella... yeah, no, Stella was um, Baroque. That's how she called oh. it. Yes. Okay. Oh, no, Baroque. Carlo Moratti. So Carlo Moratti was a, he was an artist of 17th century. And she was, a, she was it. And I mean, I have books. I just followed her around. She thought I was an art historian, uh, an art history student when I first met her. And she would send me to places that I didn't want to go to because she thought she would give me an education. And I had so little time. And all I wanted to do was follow her to the market. And every time she said, I'm going shopping, I go, can I come? She goes, no. <laughs> and so I would end up in these churches, which I'm going, oh, this, you know, this, this, isn't, this isn't it. Um, so, yes, she was, she was an expert. And um, 
the still life was something very, very separate. That was that was a, that was when we you know came backwards and forwards with, with when we were talking about this. It was a the the essays came from a book called by Norman Bryson called Looking at the Overlooked: Four Essays on Still Life Painting. Um, and the idea, the last essay was the idea of still life and the feminine space, which if anyone is interested, it's a fantastic book. And that I do write about that and associate it with Evelyn within the book. And, and I always do. I, I just acknowledge that it's, it was not my idea. It was, it was from a really brilliant essay. But everyone steals and you steal beautifully, if that's what you're doing. Um, <laughs> while we're talking... Um, Evelyn, let's just uh, consider, though, what she is in relation to Ulysses, because it feels to me like they're, in some ways, the central love story of the book. And yet there are love stories all along the way. And, of course, we have Peggy. Peg, um, when you began, did you know that you were going to have to hold that incredible tension for Evelyn and Ulysses to get back together? Because it really is like she's his Penelope, isn't it? Um, you know, that's mm, the relationship yes. we're kind of mostly waiting for. Did you know that or did that evolve? Yeah. No, it all evolves. I mean, I don't plot, so it's very chaotic. I have an ending. And so that will automatically give me the arc where I know that I'm... <laughs> Wonderful suspense, isn't it? Um, you could have been saying anything, but we missed it. You said, though, okay. <laughs> you have an ending. And I have to say to you, please explain that to us before you go any further. You have an ending. You just dropped into the pond. I start, I start with an ending with all the books. So once, you know, all that sort of archaeology, as I call it, of thinking about a character and then you're reading and it's all just, you know, kind of fizzing, I suppose, fizzing around your ether and in your heart. And then before I sort of really commit, I've got to work out, you know, is there enough, am I in love enough for two years? Am I, is the idea going to sustain me? Is there enough going on that I'm going to just really enjoy being here? Um, and then when that happens, then I, I kind of have become cinema at that point. And I go back to those sort of films of the 30s, 40s, 50s, when the ending is so important. You know, that people used to leave the cinema talking about the ending. So then I'll have an ending of what I think is, is how I want people to be left with. And then I'm kind of starting in, in the opposite direction to that. And that's how it goes. I, I thought there would be this slight cat and mouse moment with them. Um, but I didn't know how and when it was going to happen because, as I said, I, that comes as, as the story goes on. But what I was aware of, I think there was a section in the, what I call the 1954 to 59, which is the Evelyns, where I say they will... They will miss each other like this for a few years and they will laugh about it later. Meaning I wanted to, I didn't want this to descend into farce or tension for the reader. I wanted the reader to know, but you will be okay and they will be okay. And so, you know, contrary to how you're supposed to write a book, I didn't want anything bad. I didn't want too much of that tension there for the reader. 
Well, it becomes the, the mystery becomes the how, not so much the if, doesn't it? Because it's always the thing of how, how will they find each other when you've given us that reassurance? Which leads me to think about, yeah. um, if I may, the authorial voice. I think the authorial voice of this book is fascinating because you do this thing where it's third person and it feels quite comfortably, as we know, third person, and then you'll just have that voice chat to one of the characters. You know, you'll say, I, I wrote something down, I'll, I will never find it because I never use my notes, but um, uh, yes, here it is. Um, you, at one point, for instance, here's an example, Cress thought Evelyn had something of the poets about her, but didn't everyone that year, Cress? Loss and love, the only... So there's this lovely conversational thing. And at one point I thought, who is this narrator? Is the narrator mm. you? Is the narrator just a third person that you've kind of made a bit more comfortable? Or is there something else going on that, that I am confused about? <laughs> something else going on. So, in my edit we took out 17,000 words and we took out a narrator. What, a character? Um, no. Yeah, we took the narrator out. And she, it was absolutely the right decision because the narrator sorry, was gone. discovered. Sorry, I've just gone into shock. Who is it? <laughs> the narrator, oh, I'm not going to give too much away because I might use them again because they were terrific. But what it did, it was really good um, and what it had given me, it was absolutely right, it made no difference in a strange way, Elsa, taking out the narrator, because the voice was there anyway. But what it allowed me to be, and this was a word that came up many times, was casual. Be casual. Um, and that's how it was. It was this... Is anyone breathing? No one's, no one's breathing. You said, be casual, and then it dropped out. And we're all going... <gasps> yeah, just be, just be casual. So, so I'm not setting myself up in any way. That The more I got to know them, the more I got that their kind of interaction and casualness with each other was infecting me as a writer or the opposite, you know, it, there was this symbiotic feeling and there were many times where I was just sitting there. There were moments that I felt I could have written this book forever, which has never happened to me before, that I knew it so well and there were moments, and I probably won't ever have it again, but it's lovely to have it once, where I felt that I could write anything and I would be believed because it was just one of those moments of absolute alignment with your art and your creativity and your craft and your belief and your love and the mystery. All the things that you hoped for but really don't come that often. You know, it's mostly just the hard slog of craft. And in those moments, I just thought I knew them. And so it, their kind of interaction became mine, the interaction with them. Mm. And it was a quite fun thing to do. Well, well, it feels like fun. I think that's what intrigued me about it was that it felt so personal that third person voice anyway it's beautiful I hope you I hope you do work with it because it's a really wonderful voice um, so what we've got to talk about I'm mindful of time what we've got to talk about I think is family 
and extended family and uh, the family you create from these crazy, disparate people, which I don't know about other readers, but it felt to me like something I yearned for so deeply and I found with this book. Because of the times we're in and we've been so separate, and you I may have been writing it through COVID, I don't know, perhaps you could tell us about that, but, but the sense of creating this family that is made and made partly by history and partly by happenstance, but somehow is sort of perfect because of their freedom with each other. Could you talk a bit about that and writing it, if it was, through lockdown? Yeah, so the whole idea of family, I mean, in this country, Margaret Thatcher changed um, society. So she made it from, from moving from kind of a community of a caring situation to individualism. And it has run that way successively every right-wing government we've had. So I will move on to that a bit. But if, if we sort of talk about, okay, the 80s and Mrs. Thatcher, that was when I came out, so early 80s, um, as a gay woman. And much as my family was supportive, many people weren't, you know, for others. You know, and and it was a time. It was a time of AIDS. It was a time of uh, a horrendous um, uh, kind of place to be if you were LGBTQ plus um, person. So, what was happening, and and that was what was really obvious that people found each other, and that's what tends to happen. That if you are other, and I choose these words carefully, other than the norm that has been created for centuries and centuries and centuries, which I have to say, by the church, all those millennia ago. If you are other, then you will seek out the other, you know, and you have that with, um, you know, with immigration. So you do have pockets where people, certainly first generation, have had it in, in you know, not far from there in London, where you know, you, you started to see these extended families and, and found family um, for, for many things, for familiarity and, and safety and, of course, love. So it has always been there, but it has never been encouraged. And my feeling that, that it hasn't been encouraged because certain governments actually like us to be disparate. You know, it's very easy to manipulate communities if we are all individual and if we are fractured. And so, when um, I started this book, we had just gone through Brexit. And it was the most divisive, one of the most divisive times. You know, it was, it, it was pretty horrendous. It was one of those situations where um, the vote had split families, they're still not talking, split communities. There'd been so many, so much lies and propaganda. And um, it just... It was infiltrating everything. Every phobic impulse by certain people was being given permission to be played out by our government, who we still have. And I was saying, you know what? I need to do something about this for myself because every time I'm reading something politically, I'm getting weighed down by it. And, you know, and this isn't a good energy because you can't then act. You can't then protest if you are so burdened by this. So I was thinking about joy as an act of resistance. So 
I'm going to write a, bo a book that is joyous and entertaining and concentrates on unity. Because how brilliant would that be? And I don't believe it's, it's, one of, you know, it's an untouchable situation or a nirvana. It's totally within our grasp to create that for ourselves and the acceptance. It's all it means. It's a switch in the head to say, you know what? I wake up one morning, I go, I accept anyone who is other than I am. It's very, very simple. All it takes is willingness. And I'm going to write a book like that. And so it moved on. And of course, we didn't, I didn't know what was to come. And then we did have the pandemic and we had all the other things in between. So I did, you know, I did end up, I, my um, final, final, final deadline was the end of August 2020. So we went into lockdown late March 2020. So I did have those last few months of kind of bringing it in. Um, I didn't find the pandemic particularly creative. Um, had I had to create from a standing position, I'm not sure I could have. The fact that I was so in this story was brilliant on one level because I could just keep going with the momentum. Um, and I knew it very well. But, yeah, I don't, I don't think it was a particularly creative time for me. I think some people found it. I didn't. And I still, um, I still feel I'm in the, in the grip of it. I'm not quite there yet. Mm. Because one of the things that I, I actually like to do is I find it very creative to move away from the familiar. I love to get on a train. I love to get on a plane. I love to feel uncomfortable sometimes, you know, in situations um, that I can't speak a language or I don't know where I'm going. I think the panic is a little bit good for me. I think the fear is very good for me. I like complaining about, you know, B&Bs that I really don't like. when I, uh, <laughs> I love the safety of them. You know, I've, put, I've sprinkled it with lavender and I've found some flowers and then it's like, I don't want to ever leave. <laughs> so, you know, it's, and I know that's a very fortunate position, but I, but, but I think that's what came up during lockdown is, is to, the reevaluating of all of those things. But, you know, going back, the found family is, is that we do, we need to maintain unity in the face of what's happening. I mean, I think your country is very similar. You know, we've got a lot to do. We've got a huge amount to do and we owe it to the younger generation. We seriously do. And if we can give them nothing more than joy and energy and the belief to keep going, then we absolutely owe them that. Yes. And this festival is taking place in the lead up to the federal election on Saturday and that's, I think that issue and a couple of the others that you touched on then are absolutely central to what we're all thinking about. So um, I, I think that sense of hope, as you say, it's got to be galvanising, doesn't it? But I follow on Instagram a couple of, uh, uh, an account from three 20-something women. And um, one of the things they said is that saying that you don't care about politics is a very privileged position, you know, basically saying, I don't give a shit about it. You know, that's incredibly privileged. The only thing you've got to do is care about it. And I think that's vital at the moment. I've never cared so much about anything. But um, if I can go back... Um, <laughs> yeah. If I can go back to... 
others, um, the others that you bring together in that family, yes, they're, they're a wonderful bunch of, I suppose one could say outsiders, but then outside of what? Um, but you put them outside too. That's the other thing. And, and it seems to me in a few of your books, perhaps all of them, I'm trying to think now, no, not all of them, that thing of taking characters out to somewhere else, it's not just that they can look at the world in another way, it's like they become themselves more by being in this other place. Is that your experience? Because I, stalking you on Instagram lately, I saw you'd been to Spain, and my first thought was, oh, she's writing something set in Spain. <laughs> um, is that, is that for you a feeling that you have, that people are kind of more alive outside of where they've always been or not? Brilliant question. Brilliant. Um, I think, I think it's, it, it started personally that um, I was a young queer kid in a time when it wasn't as open. You know, and, and you know, the stories of my generation before... And I'm not excluding who came next, because that might be relevant. It's just that legislation changed, you know, and, and, and that has a knock-on effect. So I'll just talk about sort of my generation. So it was a very, very different period of time. And we all say, oh, I knew I, knew, I, knew I was a bit different. You know, I knew I wasn't quite there. And, and it's that, 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 the knowledge of knowing that you don't slip perfectly into what has what society has created you know the social constructs of it all as I was saying the social constructs of family the social constructs of sexuality the social constructs constructs of motherhood mm. all of these things that have been laid down as I said primarily by um, a bunch of white blokes in the church a long time ago and they got very rich from it and they kept women down you know that's that has sort of historically been it it's great that there is sort of you know changing now slowly but so I think it's always been this exploration of otherness and outsider and I think you're right I think all the books have a tendency of of an element of outsider and that that sometimes you need to go into the wilderness in order to become who you can become in order to come back mm. more solid more more accepting of yourself being able to weave your own path through um, community and society and to sort of be the best you in being able to offer up things. So I think that whole element of being an outsider is very potent. And, and it's not just about being queer. Everyone will have their own idea of what outsider resonates for them. You know, it might have just been breaking free of or of your family or breaking free of a job that had been laid down for you. But the fact is that, that for a little moment in time, you feel that disconnect and the um, sort of the, the eyes of community are looking at you in not the most loving way. Mm. And so I think, I think there is a freedom, as we said, about the invisibility of women as well, about being on the outside. Because then you bear witness to so much. And that's great, that you're not, not solely in it, but you can bear witness and you can kind of move in and out. Um, and I do, I, in, in all of my books, they're all outsiders. I've moved people outside or people are, are, are just outside. <laughs> this is kind of like cliffhangers, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's who they are. 
Um, we had a little cliffhanger moment, but you're back, which is wonderful. Okay. It's very short. Um, you did mention just uh, a sentence or two ago, motherhood, and I thought we're going to have another... Oh, we're running out of time terribly. Um, I'm okay. going to ask you to read, because it's a treat for us all, if you would, to read The Unlikely Mother if you will. Aww. We haven't touched on Peg, but you will all remember Peg. Yeah. And there's a sequence where she describes, in a way, the family. It's the first Christmas in Tuscany, in, in Florence. That's um, right. And Peg arrives. So we're just going to hear that from Sarah, and then we'll go to audience questions. Yeah, so Peg has just arrived at the pensione, and she's walking up the stairs um, behind her kid, Alice, and Cressy. Peggy Temper, walking up the stone staircase, as if she was in a film. Find your light, Peg, find your light. The echo of her heels, stair after stair after stair. The bewitching line of her stocking seemed like a musical digit. Da-da, da-da, da-da. An old woman on the first floor peeked through the door to watch. Peg smiled that smile and fuck was it catching. Four years since that old bat had cracked a grin. The sweet kid up ahead, all chatty this and that with a spray of Italian loquacity. Clever little thing. All Eddie's side, her mum would have said, nothing of you. The atmosphere airless, a bit like a museum. Peg out of her comfort zone, but she didn't know that ended anymore. What? She said. Cress had stopped and was looking at her. The truth, he said. Good or bad? She knew what he meant. So, so, she said. Her thighs feeling strong from the climb, her heart thumping wild. I said I'd marry Ted. Cress shook his head and went on up. Here we are, said Alice. My home. Two words that shouldn't have affected Peg, but they did. In here, said the kid. Peg undid her coat. Heady smells of hot wine and spice and oranges and cloves. Smoke and mirrors in the hallway. Doors leading off to exquisite embroidery and beds. The faint fog of coal from the kitchen. Into the living room she glided, and she shed her fur as if it was spring. Her new brazier offered up a couple of heritage peaks, classic peg. Over to the tree where her perfume mingled with its piney grip. Peter, the piano, lit by candles. Cole saying something about the idiot in Milan he hit with a car. Nothing changes. And yet, and yet, some things do. She stood at the window the myriad of yellow lights splaying out from shutters and the bell tower and the nativity scene and the dark flit of birds across a navy and magenta marbled sky. Temps and the kid, she'd lost them to this. And in her ears came a roaring sound like waves. Cress handed her a glass of bubbles. She drank it in one and the sound disappeared. Music and laughter again. <sighs> kid handed her the parrot swaddled in a sheet. Pete saying, it's like looking at the baby Jesus and Mary. Oh, and you're the three wise men, are you? Said Peg, dopey, grumpy, sleepy. Claude opened his eyes. Peg, he said quietly. What is it, sweetie? And she leant in close to him. What is it? Her ear, now it is big. What? Don't marry Ted. Don't forget, you can buy all of Sarah's books outside, but you can't get the audio books out there. So, you know, you've got a choice to make. We are going to take a few questions because we started late. 
Um, so we've got time. I beg your pardon, those of you who need to go bang on seven, because I've been following a clock down here that was set to an hour, but of course we started late. So please, is there anyone who's got a question? Here we go. Hello. Uh, hello. Um, my name is Ganesh, Ganesh Bala. Uh, my question is, uh, when I heard the name Ulysses, I remembered Tennyson and James Joyce. When I yes. found the definition given, uh, uh, I found it is more close to kids when it comes to uh, beauty, aesthetics, definition given in the novel. Then I found uh, Ian Froster. So it looks like, uh, are you rediscovering the romanticism in the COVID times? Oh my goodness, what a beautiful question. Yeah, you know what? Maybe that's true. I suppose what I started with you calling, I mean, the name Ulysses came first. So I was going to call him that. But what I was playing at was, I don't, I, I can talk about Forster. I can't talk about Joyce in the question. I can't really talk about Keats very well. I did start to know a lot about Forster. Forster talks a lot about um, certainly in a room with a view, um, the light and dark of people and connections. That's really what force is about, interconnectedness, you know, and beauty. So sacred versus the profane, the educated versus the not, life of the body versus life of the spirit. And absolutely with what you're saying running through that is that kind of romanticism and the romantics. And... That's what I was concentrating more on with this book, was that who has the right to comment on art? Which is one of the things in Forster's A Room With A View, because everybody does. It's about making that accessible. And, and that's why it's very much about what is your response? What is your response to poetry? What is your response to art? You know, because that is enough. You don't have to know anything else. It's the thinking that you have to know anything else that becomes, that excludes people. And again, people like other people to be excluded from certain spaces. And so setting up a book that has a lead character, Ulysses, I'm saying, you know what? You might come to this because you think it's literary. Of course, there is a lot of literary references, but I want this to be so inclusive. I'm going to take you on this journey that you think you might know what this book is about. But it's not, because at the end of the day, it's just about people connecting. And it is about the power of beauty. And it is about the power of poetry and what that can do to us. And you're absolutely right when you talk about Keats. And, you know, the Romantics went to Florence. You know, Shelley, Keats, and Byron, and Robert Browning, and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And a lot of people were drawn because of the poetry, because of the weather because of moving away from the social conventions of England, because all of those things, the prose, the artworks, it did something to their soul. And so by bringing this up, you're absolutely right. You know, this ignited the soul in a way that was incredible. And, and we think that we are the ones who sort of pick up books. So I've picked up A Room With A View and I'm going to Florence. They were doing it 250 years ago. I just throw this in that I didn't read this book, but there was a book by a French woman called Madame de Stael. She wrote it in 1807. 
and it was called Corinne ou l'Italie, and it was translated into English in 1810. And apparently Mary Shelley read it all the time. So did Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and they used it as this unofficial guide when they went to Florence. So they were all doing it at this point, you know, and it was, it's, you know, that's why the, the romantic poets went there. You're absolutely correct about that. It's a lovely question. I've never been asked anything like that. Thank uh, you. Thank uh, you. Uh, that means... Uh, Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, uh, that means you are a new romantic and new individual, is it? <laughs> Well, I'll take that from you. Thank you. <laughs> um, we have another question. Of, oh, this, I'm sorry. This is Susan Windham, who is one of our most loved literary critics and readers and who gave me the book to read. So, Susan, please. I have a short question. Why the parrot? <laughs> if I've got a short answer, the short answer to that is... A parrot is comedy gold. <laughs> so the parrot was, was, um, was created as a light relief. And then I was surprised by what the parrot became. So the parrot would have been, you know, there would have been parrots in East End pubs. Very briefly because songbirds were around because of Huguenots. That's, they were the ones who brought the songbirds to the East End and also the proximity to the, I know a parrot is not a songbird, but the, but the history, and the proximity to the docks of exotic birds being brought in. So this would have been in a pub. Um, and as I said, who is Ulysses going to be confronted with? Yeah, a mute parrot. I thought that was hysterical. And one that was, um, you know, losing its feathers. So it, it looked as run down as the pub. And then as I went along, I realized that this parrot was actually um, mirroring what was happening to the community. So the post-traumatic stress of this parrot was actually what had happened to the East End at that time. And then I got really fond of the parrot. And then, and then I and just started chatting and I thought, yeah, again, playing with this with this literary device stroke exclusive and they why yeah let's have the parrot who might be shakespeare you know it's going to make people just turn and go what is she doing and i want people to think that you know so all these great works appear in this book it's not a great work not it's 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 a fun work i want people to and if some of these references peak interest then then that's amazing i think we have time for one more question thanks so much for that sarah and Thank you both for the most fantastic conversation and I think your mission of bringing joy has absolutely been accomplished this evening. Thank you very, very much for it. I've got a really simple question. Where did you get the idea from? <laughs> oh, okay. So, 2015, I went to Florence um, as, a, as a holiday. I'd just done a basic Renaissance art course at the National Gallery and I was about to embark on sort of publicity tour of Marvellous. So I'd had, I knew what that was going to be like. So I thought I would go to Florence. It was January. It was wonderful. It was 10 days. And that was when I learned about the flood. So I saw some photographs in a restaurant and I talked to the owner. And I, and I, never, I never knew about the flood. In a restaurant? Can I just and say it's food? Sorry. It, yes, yes, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I didn't know about the flood. The flood, so I didn't get the little twinge as I'd been talking earlier about. Didn't quite get, I was just interested. Okay, so there was this flood there. And then the owner and I started talking about these young men and women who came uh, in 1966 to clean up. And I'll just segue for those who don't know. So the flood itself, it, it happened 4th of November. Uh, waters receded after about 36 hours. It was the flooding of the Arno and waters that had been let out from the dam. Now, it wasn't water, as, you know, Australia knows. It's just never just water. You know, it was mud and it was animal carcass and it was all the heating oil that had been stored in the basements and it was sewage. And when the water receded, a ton of mud for every citizen was left and it coated everything. Millions of books were destroyed. State archives were ruined. Miles of shelving, 14,000 movable artworks, 15,000 cars, 50,000 homeless, 6,000 businesses and the start of the artisanal working class being moved out of the city. So it was massive consequence. So that came later. I've just pushed that in. So he's telling me about these young men and women who decided I'm coming to clean the city. And then you start to think, you go, and then I'm starting to get that twinge. I'm starting to think, oh no, I've been met by a story. So I'm gonna have to honor that. Oh no, oh no. And, and then you start to think, well, it's 66, so this was the generation of the war generation. You know, and, this, and what was happening in Europe was this encouragement to travel and this encouragement to help and this encouragement for peace and stability. And then you start to go, ah, oh, okay, okay. So that's the starting point. But I, I tried to push it away for about three years because I was writing something else. But... Um, because I thought, you know, I, I don't know the city. I never knew the city. I had no relationship with the city. And then, and then gradually, the more I read, I thought, okay, we'll have the starting point of the flood. And then, of course, we all, we've got wartime because that wouldn't absolutely make sense because during the flood, people go, oh, my goodness, it's even worse than the war. Because the Germans, when they left Florence, they blew up all the bridges except the Ponte Vecchio, which they shouldn't have done because it was declared an open city. So... Once I had that, then we were working on where, where actually I was going to go. An Italian friend said, don't touch the 90s. It's really politically dodgy. And then I thought, mm, okay, um, I won't. And then I thought, I'll be on the safe side. I won't even touch the 80s. <laughs> um, and, so, <laughs> and so I thought, I'll go up to the 70, I'll go 79 and Evelyn's 99th. And that seemed to be a good place. But it's, it, the starting point was definitely the flood. How could you resist Silvio Berlusconi? I mean, really, you could have gone there. <laughs> Thank you so much for that wonderful question, whoever. I, sorry, where was it? Um, we have to wrap up, which this feels a bit like the ending of all Sarah's books where you can't bear to say goodbye. Um, thank you, Sarah, for such a generous uh, our, of your company and thank you all for coming. Don't forget that the bookshop is open. If you've not read the other three books, may I say to you, you will adore them. And Sarah, you, you've given us such a gift tonight and with that extraordinary book and may you come south very soon so we can all get you to sign our copies. Thank you. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. 
If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to swf.org.au for more great content.